Welcome to the Three Creeks Church Podcast. We're a church in Gahanna, Ohio that exists to help people find and follow God. We hope this message encourages you, challenges you, and helps you discover how much God really loves you. Welcome back. Uh, my name is Joel. I get to be the pastor here. And if you know me, you know that I like to have a plan. Uh, we are usually between six and eight months out on the, the Three Creeks message series calendar. I like to, you know, dink it out and, and you know, prepare for it far in advance. But, you know, we, we also say that when we do that, we have a plan, but we, we try to hold it loosely. But I typically hold it pretty tight. And I'm not moved on it very often, but man, this week, the last two weeks, the Lord has really been just, I just have sensed it, just really asking me to change the plan. And so I, I was holding on to it tighter than bark on a tree, but God has ripped my fingers from the plan. And I'm going to give you something that I hadn't really planned on giving, something that God's been doing in my life um, because we're in week four of this series called Conquest, which has been our walk through the book of Joshua. And if you're just jumping in, or you're newer to church and not even really sure what that is, let me take 30 seconds. Joshua is the sixth book of the Bible. Moses dies at the end of the fifth book of the Bible and passes the baton to our man Joshua. And Joshua is going to lead all of the Israelites into the promised land of Canaan. They've been on this journey for over 400 years. And in the book of Joshua, this series that we're calling Conquest, they're just right on the edge. And we're going to read the story as they go and take the land that God has given them. That's the series. And I've known since maybe May that we were going to be doing this. And then this summer, four different people uh, decided or they were planning the, the men's retreat that happened two weeks ago. And I had really no, almost no involvement in, in setting that up. They were just going for it. And Josh Watkins, who was on that team, he was the person on their team that was tasked with, you know, what are we going to talk about? What's gonna, what, what, what will the content be? And Josh walked up to me in June in the courtyard and said, Joel, Joel, I got to talk to you. I just, I've been spending time with the Lord and I've been asking him, you know, what do the men of our church need to hear the most? And he said, what, what, do, you, what do you think about this? We're going to talk about... Joshua. And I was like, did I tell you what we're doing as a church? He said, no, what are we doing as a church? I said, Joshua. And so we kind of looked at each other like, at first it was like, wait, does do one of us need a change? And then it was, no, apparently our church needs to hear a lot about Joshua this fall. So I got to go on the men's retreat. I'd been studying, listening, reading for months and had a plan and then I got to sit there on Friday night as one of the members of our church, Joe Belisle, who's I think sitting in here somewhere, he's the person that handed you that note card on your way in, shared from God's word as we sat around a fire. And I just, I don't know how to describe it other than, other than to say, God spoke to me. The Lord moved in my heart. And I don't say that flippantly. I'm not trying to over-spiritualize it. But I believe that God does speak to people. And as I sat there that night, the Lord really moved on my heart. Have you ever eaten something at a restaurant and then gone home to try to recreate it? Copycat recipe. I think we've all tried it. It's usually not quite as good. 
but we tried anyways. I'm going to try to do that today with Joe's message. It was so good for my soul. I'm going to try to copycat recipe it and serve it to you. And I've been praying for you for the last week that maybe I wasn't the only person that needed to hear today's message. Joe went all the way to Joshua chapter 18. And so he fast forwarded through a large portion of the book of Joshua. Uh, If you read that part of the book of Joshua without really understanding what was going on, you would probably think that it was boring. You would probably get tired of reading it because it's a lot of the same. I'm going to tell you what it is, but Joe highlights this, the first 10 verses of Joshua 18, and man, the Lord spoke to me, and I hope that he will to you too. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn into Joshua chapter 18. If you don't have a Bible, we're going to throw the words on the screen so that you can read along. And if you don't actually own a Bible, we always have a table of them. I can actually see it right here, and you could grab one on your way out. And that is our gift to you, your Bible forever. Let me, let me take 30 seconds to try to tell you what happens in Joshua 6 through 17. And um, you see, the book of Joshua is all about the Israelites taking this land that God had promised their ancestor, Abraham. They had actually lived there. Their, their ancestors had lived there for a while But then they had gone to Egypt and they had been in captivity as slaves for 400 years. And Moses, one of the heroes of the Bible, comes and leads them out of Egypt. But God, in in this process, Moses dies. God raises up Joshua to then come and cross the Jordan River. We talked about that a couple weeks ago, if you were here. And and then to begin taking the land of Canaan. The people that are living in Canaan are morally corrupt to a level that I feel uncomfortable talking about it in church. The evil, the e- I'm not even going to go there because it's so unbelievably evil, it's nauseating. And, and what you find as you read through Joshua is that this process of them taking the land that God had promised them takes seven years. And this land is the size of New Jersey. So it's not as if they're trying to conquer this ginormous nation land-wise. It's, it's fairly small. It takes them seven years. And we see over and over that it's not so much Israel versus the Canaanites. This is really God's battle. And it's God giving to the Israelites what he promised them and expelling these morally corrupt and evil nations from this land. He's, he's kicking them out of this special land that God has for them. And then we get to the point where they, they've conquered it, and there's 12 tribes of Israel. Maybe I should have said that a minute ago, but now you know. There's 12 of them. At this point, at the end of Joshua 17, five of them have figured out where they're going to settle. But seven of them still haven't figured it out. And that's where we pick up these 10 verses in Joshua chapter 18. So I'm going to just read through the 10 verses and then pull out Uh, something I I feel like God wants me to share. So this is what it says. It says, The whole assembly of the Israelites, the seven tribes that are left, gathered at Shiloh. Note that for a second. A place called Shiloh. I'm going to tell you about that and why it's important. And they set up the tent of meeting there. The country was brought under their control. But there were still seven Israelite tribes who had not yet received their inheritance. So, I'm not very good at math. 
over 50%. Seven tribes still are hanging out at Shiloh. So Joshua said to the Israelites, How long will you wait before you begin to take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has given you? Appoint three men from each tribe. I will send them out to make a survey of the land and to write a description of it according to the inheritance of each, and then they will return to me. You are to divide the land into seven parts, for seven tribes, it makes sense. Judah is to remain in its territory on the south, and the tribes of Joseph in their territory in the north. And then after you've written the description of the seven parts of the land, bring them here to me, and I will cast lots for you in the presence of the Lord our God. The Levites, however, that's one of the tribes, they do not get a portion among you because the priestly service of the Lord is their inheritance. The Levites are actually going to end up living in all 12 and kind of serve as spiritual guides or pastors for the different tribes. And Gad, Reuben, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, well, they've already got their inheritance on the east side of the Jordan. Moses gave that to them. You tracking with me? Just a couple verses left. As the men started on their way to map out the land, Joshua instructed them, go and make a survey of the land and write a description of it. And return to me, and I will cast lots for you here at Shiloh in the presence of the Lord. Brief, brief rabbit trail. What are they talking about? Casting lots. I, I, nobody actually really knows, but it's some form of wherever the dice fall. What's interesting is that you never read about anyone casting lots in the Bible after the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost. You read about it a lot up to that point. Apparently, it's how God wanted to help them make decisions. But after the Holy Spirit comes, you never read about it again. In other words, that's probably not the best way to make your decisions. We have the Holy Spirit now. Verse 9. So the men left and went through the land, and they wrote its description on a scroll, town by town in seven parts, and returned to Joshua in the camp at, look at it again, they're still at Shiloh. And Joshua then cast lots for them in Shiloh in the presence of the Lord, and there he distributed the land to the Israelites according to their tribal divisions. So a lot happens in 10 verses. They had to go out, survey it, write it down, come back. I mean, we're talking, I think, at least months. These guys aren't traveling by car. So a lot happens in 10 verses. Did you notice the question that Joshua asked them before he sent them out? Joshua said to the Israelites, how long will you wait before you begin to take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has given you? How long are you going to wait? In other words, what are you waiting for? Joshua makes it clear by asking this question that they are not doing all that God has asked them to do. They are taking their sweet time enjoying the comforts of the camp in Shiloh, but they're not doing what God has called them to do, which is enter the land to move in and to take it. And it's easy for us now because we know what Joshua 20 and 21 and the rest of the Bible says. It's easy for us to look back and say, guys, what are you waiting for? Keep going. Don't stay in Shiloh. Don't stay in the tents at Shiloh. 
There's a land for you and your families and your descendants to, you could build houses and farm and thrive. This is the land that God has for you. Why, why would these people be waiting? They're, they're on the cusp of everything that they've been waiting for. Why have they stopped? But for a minute, consider what these people have gone through up until this point. Some of them were kids and their parents were slaves in Egypt. And that was probably the only house that they ever lived in. Ever since they were kids and they left Egypt with their parents, they have been on the move, nomads, camping, in tents, attacked from every side, hungry, thirsty, longing to settle, longing to feel safe. Yes, with the idea that there's this land that God's going to give us, but in and on day to day, it has not been an easy road for these people. And they finally set up camp in the area of Shiloh. Shiloh is a militarily advantageous place to be. It's a little bit higher than they were at Gilgal, which is where the, they were before. They'd all moved to Shiloh, which is in the middle of the country and a little bit higher elevation wise. And so if anybody was going to attack them, they didn't have as good of a chance as the lowlands of Gilgal. And so finally they feel protected and they're living in Canaan where the land, the, it flows like milk and honey. I mean, it's the, it's the land that flows with milk and honey. They've got fruits, vegetables, animals. They're doing fine for the first time in a long time. They feel safe. They feel comfortable. For them, this is as good as it has ever been. They're finally comfortable after 40 plus years of being very uncomfortable. And so the question, Joshua asks it, it's almost rhetorical. How long will you wait before you begin to take possession of the land? What are you waiting for? It's a rhetorical question, but if they had actually answered it, the answer may have been, until you make us move, we're good. Until you kick us out of here, we're fine. Because if we move out of here, we're essentially kind of risking it a little bit. So until you kick us out of here, Joshua, one commentary that I read asked the question, why would they not want to possess their land? Why would Joshua need to prod them? Probably because these people, these are the people who had not lived in permanent dwellings for more than a generation, and they were afraid of something new, even if it was good. They were afraid of something new, even if it was good. They were essentially saying, we are good as is, so why risk it? And we can look back and say, don't be foolish. You're right on the edge. Go for it. Send it. Just send it. It's going to work out. Look what God has done so far. He's brought you to this point. I know you finally feel safe, but it's going to be even better if you risk it and go for it. God will make a way. But isn't it true? Isn't it true that at times in our spiritual lives, we do the same thing? Isn't it true that we can experience God's goodness, acknowledge that it's better than we've ever had it, or better than it used to be, but be content to stop there before there are real risks and hard steps involved in going a little bit further? Isn't it true that 
we are addicted to being comfortable. Isn't it true that we can kind of get to the point where we go, we're fine, like as is, so, so why risk it? Even if we know there's something new and better that we could potentially have in front of us. Before I go any further on that, I just want to do another quick little rabbit trail, but I'll come back. Last week I asked the question, is there any area of your life that you, that you struggle to trust God with? Is there an area that you don't let him touch? That question came up in my community group Monday night. We're sitting there, eating city barbecue, talking about last week's message. Sometimes I think I'm like, well, I gave the message, so I'm immune from the questions, but somebody asked me. They said, Joel, is there any area that you don't trust God with? Is there an area that you don't like him to touch? And I just, I just had to be honest. I'm going to be honest with you. I, I can't even put into words how much I like to be liked. I mean, I love it. Oh, man, it is awesome to be liked. And in my role, sometimes it requires me to say things that you might not like me. You know what I mean? Like I have to point you to things that make you uncomfortable. And I don't like that part of this. The area of my life that I don't love to trust God with is my reputation. So sometimes I, I lean towards protecting it and being liked. And, and, and this is happening right in the middle of all this that's going on in my heart about what Joe had shared a week earlier. And I just felt God all earlier this week just saying, send it, Joel. He kept saying to me, Joel, do you care more about what they think about you or, what they, or, what, or do you care what they think about me? And I know in my role that I'm supposed to care the most about what you think about God, but I get a little sideways sometimes and I don't like to trust God with that. So, so, so before I go any further, I just, I need you to hear me say, I couldn't be less angry. I don't have an ax to grind. I'm not mad at anybody, but I am, I do long for our church to take that next step corporately, especially on Sunday mornings and just send it a little bit more and, and, and go for it and risk it. Because I, I just, I had a conversation with somebody recently who just started coming to our church maybe six to nine months ago, and their observation, they asked if they could be honest. I said, please be honest. They said, they said it just feels like sometimes Three Creeks values being comfortable. It works itself into how they worship. It works itself into how they pray. It works itself into how often they greet people in the hallways. And I don't think anybody has bad intentions, but it seems like people at Three Creeks value being comfortable. And I thought, ah, I think she's right. I think we're like those Israelites a little bit sometimes. Where we've, you know, we're fine as is, so why risk it? Why step out of our comfort zone when we're comfortable? It doesn't make any sense. I just... I, I don't want to play church. I don't want this to be a box that anybody checks. 
I want our experience as a church, especially in our services, to be supernatural and transformational like they have been for me at times. And I just, I want our church to collectively take a step into that. So, so let me just, let me just keep going here just for a little bit. So Charles Spurgeon, pastor, theologian, read a, yeah, sometimes it's hard to understand, but you know, people take him and then they'll quote him in something. It's like, oh yeah, that, that makes sense by itself. And one of the things that Charles Spurgeon said about the Christian experience in general, this is what he said. See if you can relate. He said, some Christians, as to the river of experience, are only up to their ankles. Others wade in the stream up to their knees. A few others find it breast high. And a few, oh, how few, find it a river to swim in, the bottom of which they cannot touch. So it begs the question, what has your Christian experience been like as it relates to the river? And, and, and then if you say, wow, it feels like I'm kind of like the ankles or the knee person, the question then is, you know, are you okay splashing around at that depth or do you like I do long for all that God wants to do in my life do you long to swim in this river that seemingly has no bottom have you ever experienced that my son is five taught him to swim this summer he uh I knew he could do it I told Morgan in April I'm like he's five he's strong I know this guy can figure it out but man he loves his swim arms you know what I mean if you've ever taught a kid to swim you know that this is a significant step for them. And it's almost, for, for us, it was like this iconic, brave moment for Judah. And Judah started off with like, Dad, do we have to do lessons? I'm like, buddy, we're doing lessons. And so he would swim for a little bit with his swim arms. And then eventually I would take off his swim arms and I, he would put them on the side. He'd kind of be shaky and nervous, but I would be, you know, maybe from here to the table, right? And I would say, buddy, just jump to me and kick and then he would jump, and he would kick, and I would catch him. And I don't know if this is bad parenting, but I would throw him back on the wall. And then I'd say, just do it again, buddy. And he would jump, and I'd say, kick. And then I'd start scooting back. And eventually, you wouldn't believe it, he can swim back and forth. And he's saying, Mom, Grandma, Grandpa, Cooper, look at me. I can swim. It's like, dude, you could swim the whole time. You could swim the whole time. And it wasn't, this is important, this is important. It wasn't that Judah was apathetic or disinterested in swimming, right? It was just that he was nervous and he was anxious because the questions of well, what if would come to his mind immediately. And I think that some of what holds us back from proverbially swimming into the experience, a supernatural, transformational, that changed my life experience, like this meeting with God, what, what stops us is not that we're apathetic or that we're disinterested, but it's this anxiety or this nervousness. We're like, well, what if, what if I try and it doesn't work? What if I go up and pray with somebody and people think I'm like, my whole life's jacked up? What if I lift my hands during a song and people go, they're doing it wrong? You know, and it's this like, it's this anxiety and this nervousness where we would rather just like kind of fit in a little bit and just rather than stand out, rather than send it, rather than risk it, we would just go, I'd really rather just kind of do what's comfortable here. You know what I mean? 
And, and I can think of a few other examples where, you know, just can consider this. There's folks that have joined a community group recently. First time you've done something like that in a while. You're starting to build friendships. And it's good. And then you begin to have these thoughts come into your mind. I'm good, so why would I risk sharing more about my life, the parts that aren't impressive? Why would I risk it? Why would I start sharing what I'm actually struggling with? What, are, what if they don't like me anymore? What if nobody else says what they're struggling with? What if I'm the only one who does that? Nah, we're good. We're fine as is, so why risk it? Why risk it? You, you know, we, you come to church regularly, this has become a habit for you, and you finally found your people, right? Maybe you joined a team or a group, and so you don't walk down the hallway feeling like you're playing Frogger. Rather, instead, you actually know people. So you go say hi to the people, and you kind of sit in the same area, and it's good, and that is good. But then these thoughts start coming into your mind as soon as we start feeling comfortable. Why would I risk introducing myself to a new person? What, what if I walk up to them and say, hey, is it your first time here? And they say, no, we've been here for a year. <laughs> you know, why would I risk that? Why would I risk meeting a weird person that I don't connect with? Why would I go out of my, why don't I just kind of do, just do what's comfortable and I'll kind of sit where I sit and say hi to the people I... And maybe the extroverted people, maybe they'll introduce themselves to the new people. Do you know the number one reason why people come back to a church they visited? Because somebody said hi to them. And I got to be honest and say, I've had a lot of conversations recently about people who came here and nobody said hi to them. Somehow, they defeated the odds and did come back, but that was their observation. Nobody said hi to me. But why risk it if we have our people? People in this room, most of them are down either running the marathon or cheering on people in the marathon, but a lot of the young adults in our church, they're in a relationship. You're finally in one. You've been waiting for a while. And then, you know, maybe it's in this new one, maybe you're living and it's more pure than the last one or than your friend's relationship. And you go, it's just kind of good now, you know, like it's, it's not what it used to be. So we're good. So why would I risk going all the way in and telling my boyfriend or my girlfriend or the person that I'm living with or my fiance, hey, let's not do that because God wants us to reserve that for if and when we get married. But, but why risk it? Why wouldn't you just stay where you're comfortable? Here's the question. How often, this is for everybody, how often does the safety or the comfort of where we're at prevent us from taking steps of faith and experiencing more of God in our lives? How often is the, like the only barrier between where we're at and where we want to be spiritually, the only barrier is just the fact that we feel really comfortable where we are. We're camping in Shiloh. This is as good as it's been for a while, so leave me alone. Don't push me. How often does that prevent it? If you've ever felt spiritually stagnant, and you've ever wondered, is there more? The answer to that question is yes. 
But that starts with your yes of saying, I will send it. I will risk it. What steps am I supposed to take? I'm not, I'm not trying to be mean. I just, this is my chance to talk about this stuff. We have a prayer team. We have a prayer team. There's three or four people that show up at 930 and then they go back there and they stand there and they can't wait to pray for people. And I have a really hard time believing that there's only one or two people per Sunday that need something in their life prayed about. And I'm not trying to accuse you and say you never pray or you're not praying on your own. I'm not trying to say that. But what I am thinking is like, man, it is befuddling to me. It is, it is astounding that on one hand we could say we believe in prayer. We believe that we can talk to God. We believe that God cares about us and we believe that God has given us brothers and sisters to pray for us and encourage us and sometimes we need that. I don't know. I mean, on one hand, we can say that and on the other hand, when given that opportunity, when, when it, we have people that are dedicated to praying for you, we go, nah. Just over and over, nah. And, and this week, we had people fill out cards. I want to join the prayer team. And there's this like pit in my stomach where I go, well, we only need like two per week. And I told the people I, that, that, that were thinking about joining the prayer team, I said, listen, right now, there's just a couple people per week, but my prayer is that we're going to need a lot more people. My prayer is that we're going to need six or eight or ten people on the prayer team because that's how many people want to pray. And, and I don't, I just... I'm trying to wrap my mind around what is it that stops us from saying like, yes, like pray with somebody. Of course, given that opportunity, why wouldn't I take that? And I don't know if it's like this self-sufficiency thing. I don't know what it is. I think it's a lot of things, but I think it comes down to it's a lot more comfortable to just sit there or stand there and let somebody else acknowledge that they need help. Here's the last one, and, and again, I'm really not mad. I just want, I just have so many of these conversations with people where I'm like, man, everybody seems to want the same thing. Like, I feel like I'm DJing in a middle school dance a little bit where the music's on and everybody wants to dance, but everybody's like hoping somebody else will ask them to dance. You know what I'm saying? I'm a little like, what did I write? I don't, I don't want to be mean. Okay, here's what I wrote. I'm a little sad sometimes at the lack of enthusiasm when we come and meet with God and sing to God. And it's not to a person. It's just a general feeling that I have. Sometimes it feels like we're just kind of doing it again, you know? Sing the songs. How many are they going to sing today? Three, four? Okay, thanks, guys. You know, and it's just like, I'm just sometimes a little sad that we're not entering into that space with worshipful hearts that then are like, we can't even hardly contain it. And so we just, we can't help but just close our eyes and sing louder and put our hands up and, and worship God a little bit more freely and expressively. And I get it. Sometimes we were like, well, it's not my personality. It's like, I've seen you watch football. So... I'm just saying, 
And, and, and maybe it's not. Maybe you're not bent that direction. But I'm just saying collectively, I'm just wondering. And, and the reason I bring it up is because I have so many conversations with people that say, man, I just wish that people were a little bit more expressive when they worship. I'm like, well, then do it. Like everybody kind of want, everybody wants to dance at the dance. So somebody go to the dance floor and start dancing. Everybody, and, and um, I don't know, I'm not speaking very well today, it's fine. I'm not trying to make this a super weird, over-spiritual experience where a guest would come in and be like, whoa, that's weird. But I'm also not, I'm trying to help us not neuter it either. And not give this like curved JV version of what it looks like to meet with God. Like we get to come in here on Sunday mornings and we're trying to meet with the living God. And so I'm not trying to just make it super weird because I do want people who have no experience with God to come in and, and say like, okay, what is this about? We've all seen the memes that are like, yeah, not going to that church. But I am trying to say like, I'm not trying to like give people like a, what's the word? more digestible, more comfortable, not even real experience of what it's like to meet with God. I'm, I'm proud of, I'm, prou I'm proud of the Israelites. And, and they're not perfect. And if you keep reading to the end of Joshua, you find out, yeah, they don't kill the game all the way to the end. But I am proud of them because Joshua says, hey, what are we waiting for here, people? Like, what? why are you still camped here? This is not where you were supposed to stop. There's still seven tribes that don't have their land yet. And you're just because it's better than it was does not mean you get to stay here and relax because it's comfortable. It's time to go do all God has set out before you to do. And I, I'm just, I read that and I'm proud of the Israelites because for the next seven verses, they do what he says. They send it. They risk it. They go for it. And sure enough, they all end up in the land that God had promised them. And so in the same vein, I'm just asking you, Three Creeks, if you will consider receiving my nudge, receiving my question of like, what are you waiting for? Why are you staying where you're comfortable? Use the prayer team. Raise your hands. Join a team. Introduce somebody that you don't introduce yourself to somebody that you don't know. Join a community group. Serve at the EL classes. Just encourage somebody today on the way out. Maybe that is really uncomfortable for you to do. To offer words of encouragement that will be wind in somebody's sails. Somebody walked in here today having a terrible week and the words that you could share could just change it all today. Just, just what's that next step for you? Don't let un, I'm uncomfortable or I feel safe here prevent you from going a little bit further and experiencing all that God wants for you. Prayer team back there, a couple of you guys. Here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna sing a little bit of a song it's that Faithful Now song that we were learning. Prayer team's available. 
In a few minutes, I'm going to come out and share one more closing thought. And then we're going to sing a little bit of another song. And, um, and I, hope, I hope you'll receive the nudge and just send it. Just, uh, yeah. I hope you'll say yes to some of the suggestions that I gave. Thanks for listening to the Three Creeks Church Podcast. To find out more about our church, to give online, or to attend a service, visit threecreekschurch.com.